Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm here with Jamie O'Connor, who is my eldest son. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Mum. <laughs> and Jamie is a bit of a history buff. He's been well into history for pretty much his whole life, starting with walking with dinosaurs and then moving on to people after that. And we wanted to talk today, we were going to talk about something else but we decided in the end to talk today about women in history really because there's a distinct lack of them aren't there yeah yeah it's not something you notice at first when you're a kid but uh it is something that becomes more apparent over time yeah so and can I just say here that we are winging this conversation, but we were going to go somewhere else and we're unable to do that for various reasons. So this is a conversation we started and we're just going to talk our way through it, which is going to be really cool. So you went to university, you did a degree in ancient history at university, didn't you? And you've just delved into things before and since then too. Yeah, yeah, correct. And what was your specialisation? What's the area that intrigues you the most? So it's ancient Greece and Rome, which is the part of history that we generally call the classics or antiquity. As a kid, I was really into ancient Rome because of like the movie Gladiator. But yeah, uh, when I got to uni, that moved over to, to Greece a bit more. Yeah. So fifth century Greece mainly, which is coming out of the Bronze Age and before Alexander the Great. So during the time when, which Greece is most well known for, which is you know, all the philosophers and architects and artists, this is generally the period of time where most of them are from. And that's 5th century BC. Yeah, correct. When we think of all those ancient history, all that ancient history, we think of people like Socrates and Aristotle and there's all these men. You never hear about the women. Talk to me about that because you were saying... There aren't many women. You could think of three, and it took you a good few seconds to think of that many. But you said we can only extrapolate what we know from that absence. Yeah, correct. And it is it is risky to do that because, yeah, you, you're just sort of guessing from passing remarks. It's generally the case that first-person sources from, like, most of history don't really sort of talk about their own culture per se like gender roles they were just i can't think of a, an ancient greek source who, who thought gender roles were worth commenting on i guess the gender role seems to have been fairly familiar to us women were domestic and men were not seems to have been ubiquitous throughout greece but the the interesting part about ancient greece was um because there were so many different quote-unquote countries there was lots of different ways of doing things. We know of at least one matriarchal society. It, it was Greek, but it, it's in modern Italy. But I don't know too much about it. I don't know that we know that anyone knows much about it, to be honest. I don't know how we heard of it. What was it? 
just a, a city that was whose governance was known to be matriarchal. It was a very small community. Don't know too much more about it, to be frank. But yeah, it's, that thing was probably passed down to us because it was so unusual and just commented on and then left. So yeah, we really do have a paucity of, of evidence in any direction. So what do we know about the wind? Were that, were that, let's go off because I was saying to you that I had a guest on a few months ago and one of the things she looks at is women in history have tended to be overlooked even when they've been in charge. Like the, the men just go, aberration, because it's that men tend to be the historians. We don't want to talk about that. Let's focus on all of these fabulously virile deeds that are happening over here. Yeah, I don't know if they were overlooked because they were women and because the historians were men. I just think certainly in ancient Greece, there's just not really any, if you're interested in political history or military history, which are the two main branches of it, just very little to comment on at all. Generally where women come in in political history is in palace politics. This is more prominent in Rome because of the nature of governance. What was the difference in the nature of governance between Greece and Rome? Well, it depends on the time. So Rome had, a, in the Republic, a very curious form of government. But I, I don't think that form of government was really too different to what we might have expected in, in parts of Greece. There was elements of it that were popular sovereignty. So Rome had an, what in Greece we would call an ecclesia, but in Rome was assembly. And they also had a, a sort of a group of aristocrats. In Greece, we'd call that a, a gerousia. They eventually became oligarchs. So the difference between, so an aristocrat is powerful by birth and an oligarch is powerful by sort of whatever Eight. practical power he has in the moment. So it could be money, in which case he would be a, a timocrat. But generally it's a combination of both. I mean, it had some monarchical elements. I think a lot of nuance is lost because the main purpose of government, like the in the transition from being prehistorical to historical, humans invented government and the purpose of it was to prevent organised violence, not within the country but from another because there was a lot of scarcity in the world. And you could either go out and gather resources yourself, which were very, like you were very close to, to death, much closer than we live today throughout their lives. And basically a, a band of people could sort of group together and then take the resources of another band of people. And that was a very real threat. In the Odyssey, for instance, Odysseus arrives at Pylos to King Nestor's court and everybody says, oh, who's this? Is he a pirate? And Odysseus says, no, no, I'm not a pirate, because piracy was very common and it was a very respected thing. And then someone else goes, are you a, a merchant of some kind? And Odysseus goes, how dare you? Those are fighting words. So organised violence was very common, and that was the purpose of government, which I think is why it was almost never had a, a place for, for female voices. As cities became bigger, which was not inevitable, but it did happen over time. The main threat of violence or an equally deserving yeah, source of violence was within the city. 
from the distribution of resources among the people there. And so again, it, it's a it's a male thing. And I, I so I think it's organized fairly or it, it has resulted fairly organically. So the role of women has there's been a, a religious part of it. So a lot of the leading gods in ancient Greece and Rome were were female. Certain religious roles were reserved for females. You can see that just sort of seems to be an association with the more productive tasks that people do as opposed to the destructive tasks. And priestesses were often women, often compelled to be virgins. I can think of in two circumstances. One is the Vestal Virgins of the Temple of Vesta in Rome. And another is the priestess of Hera at Argos. So both of them had like a kind of chronological role. So the priestess of Argos was actually a way of dating years. So there's a point in the Peloponnesian War where Thucydides, the historian, says such and such event happened in the 20 and 6th year of the priestess ship of so-and-so, of Argos, at, at, of Hera at Argos. So, yeah, I think that'd be the first one that comes to mind. And, this, oh, I, I skipped palace politics, actually. So after Augustus became emperor of Rome and he sort of instituted a new system of government, he was, he was very capable and very good at what he did, but he found controlling his family to be quite difficult. He exiled his daughter and his granddaughter to the Black Sea because they were um, uh, having a lot of sex with a lot of people to put it bluntly, including the poet Ovid, who wrote the Ars Amatoria, which is a famous Latin love poem. Probably about the things he did to Augustus' granddaughter, <laughs> which doesn't bear thinking about. <laughs> there was also um, the, the wife of Claudius, I want to say, who attempted to poison him to make sure that her son Nero was made emperor. I believe that's how it went. She was called Agrippina. Yeah, so that kind of that kind of role. In ancient Greece, in the Peloponnesian War, there were certain instances where power was concentrated enough in one person for that to have been a factor. So Athens was the most powerful state in ancient Greece, and there was a period of time where it was led by a certain man who, who was very popular and remained popular over a long period of time. It's not a monarchy, but he was like the, the John Howard, I guess. And he divorced his wife to be with a, a prostitute called Aspasia. I mean, I call her a prostitute. She was actually um, hetera, which is like a, like a, I don't know, like a geisha, I guess. Autophile? Courtesan. Yeah, she was a courtesan. So she was known to be very intelligent. If you read some of Socrates, sorry, some of Plato's dialogues of conversations with Socrates and his mates, she's in a couple of them. So she was apparently very clever, very good looking. And yeah, there was a bit of tongue wagging because uh, when Athens eventually went to war with Sparta, a common rumor going around was that the reason the war had begun was because it was that Aspasia was a madam and some of her girls had been sort of kidnapped by some Spartans from Corinth and she wanted them back. <laughs> so she made Pericles go to war. 
because the reason that Pericles gave ostensibly was that the, they should concede nothing in certain negotiations over tensions between Athens and Sparta and Thebes and Corinth. And mainly there was the, this decree that said that a certain city, Megara, was not allowed to trade with Athens. And apparently the Athenian public didn't really find it convincing not to let it go. And they thought that the reason Pericles was motivated so strongly was because of some connection to do with Aspasia. So yeah, Pericles had a a son by Aspasia who was also called Pericles and who later had a minor role in Athenian politics. But Pericles' political fortunes ended pretty abruptly and he died within a couple of years of that incident. He got the plague. An incident which I thought of when you first mentioned this topic is ancient Greek society was, there was a lot of machismo. It was very dangerous, basically. There was a lot of threat of personal violence. More than today, not necessarily that you'd walk around your daily life worrying you'd get stabbed, but there was a lot. And among the political elites, positions were usually quite tenuous. So a person had to be perceived to be commanding respect. A violation of someone's respect was was taken very seriously. So there was a, a certain incident where, um, so the way Sparta was run was it, it had two kings and it had a council of elders and it had a assembly. Oh, it sounds a lot like Rome, doesn't it, actually? God, I hadn't thought of that. Anyway, these two kings were, were not very powerful at all. And in the period we're talking about, one of them was actually exiled from Sparta and he he was worried that the Spartans would send people to kill him so he he built his house inside a temple complex so that his bed was inside the temple grounds but the rest of the house was not so that when he slept the Spartans couldn't come and stab him he was eventually recalled but anyway so the king's position was very sort of I mean Sparta's weird for all sorts of reasons but anyway There was an Athenian general who was exiled from Athens, so he fled to Sparta. And while he was in Sparta, he had an affair with the king's wife. And as this was (laughs) discussed, apparently the king was at a a party one day and someone goes to him, your wife has had a baby. And he counts the months back and he's like, in front of everyone, it can't be mine. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah so alcibiades leaves town he eventually makes it back to athens and he becomes very popular basically the leading general at athens but the king of sparta doesn't forgive and does not forget and he is determined to crumble athens into the ground and again people assume like with the pericles aspasia thing this this Spartan king and his wife, that that was the motive for a geopolitical decision. Yeah, any questions? I mean, the famous one of of that is Helen of Troy, isn't it? Ah, yeah. Yeah, What what happened there? Because we've seen the movie, well, I haven't actually seen the movie, but I kind of know the story. But what really happened there when it doesn't involve Orlando Bloom and Brad Pitt? What went on? Well, I mean, all we have is the Iliad, I guess. Is it a true story? I mean, probably. Troy was a real place. 
we know from the stones that it, it was burnt down and earthquaked several times, including around the time when the Trojan War could have happened. But it could have been a story. It could have been. I somehow doubt it. So basically it's in song form. It's like a, an epic ballad. And these things have a way of going down hundreds of years without being changed. I read someone who was investigating that thing and he was citing Macedonian, Macedonians as in the modern Balkan people, their oral tradition and showing that, yeah, there's like in an epic ballad, people will change like words here and there, but it's generally the same thing and it stays remarkably stable over long periods of time. So, um, no, I think it was true. But like giant wooden horse, was that true? Who knows? I mean, the gods figure prominently in it. But yeah, Troy was, the, the time of Troy was a different society to ancient Greece. It was obviously really important to Greek culture in the fourth century, which is my area. But certain things were very different. It was an aristocratic culture. It was made up of lots of different basileis. So in Greece, they had a word for king, but they, they never used it, which is basileis. But during the, um, the Iliad, there's heaps of them. There's, there's hundreds of them. They had a word for a one-man ruler, and that was tyrannos. And the, there's quite a few of them in classical Greece, but in Bronze Age Greece, no. So the role of women in that is there's female gods, um, one of whom is a famous warrior. Yeah, they all seem to be sort of just plain old human. I don't think women are, are fleshed out in Greek culture anywhere except for the goddesses. Helen is Helen's a bit of a mystery. Like, did she... Did she want to get kidnapped? Kidnapping was not uncommon in many cultures. So, yeah, but I think she's there was a, a famous speaker in classical Greece, and he was known to be very, very good at giving a speech. And one of the things he could do was he was supposed to be so good that he could defend Helen of Troy and make you think that she was innocent, which is interesting because... The Greeks of the time we know thought that Helen of Troy was the one to blame for all of this, that she had run off with Paris. Why would she run off with him? Like you're saying kidnap was common then. Talk to me about that. There was a lot of, there seems to have been a lot of sort of, oh, can you please kidnap me? I hate this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, she was probably an aristocrat, so however my she may not have had too much, you know, her marriage was arranged. And I don't know, I think it's quite likely, likely that she was given away in marriage at 16. You don't really know what you're doing. And then by the time you get to 26, maybe, maybe 30, you're a bit stronger, you're a bit more sure of yourself. And I don't know, some hot Turkish guy comes along and you just, just jump on board. <laughs> but yeah, we, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, the other role in is in the Odyssey, which is Penelope. She's the good wife. 
and she's the, the queen basically. So she's in charge of the kingdom while the king was away, which ended up being 20 years. A lot of men competed to to remarry her for a long period of time. It was seen that she had her choice on who she married. It was also seen that there was an expectation that she needed to pick someone because there needed to be a king. But she was at free reign to determine how she did that, to get rid of people she didn't like, to, to do all sorts of things. The other one is Circe, who was a, a sorceress. Odysseus was on an island and Circe bewitched him. And just kept him there because, well, I mean, he's, he's semi-divine. He's probably a good catch. And if you've been on an island forever, like, if anyone looks handsome, so. <laughs> I think there's certain traditional roles, but I don't think there's, there seems to have been much depression, uh, depression, oppression. Moving on to classical Greece. In Athens was known to be a bit stricter about what women could do, so they had to have their hair covered in Athens. I didn't know that. Yeah, they did. Some men apparently didn't like them leaving the house as well. But I don't know too much more about it. Sparta was quite different. The women were expected to be athletically fit, just like the men. The women competed in athletic games uh, naked, just like the men. There was also... So Sparta is a bit tricky because we don't really know how to separate the the fact from the fiction because Sparta was a legend in its own time and a lot of people didn't know how it worked and so a lot of people probably made up stories about it. But Sparta was also probably, not probably, I won't give a probability to it, possibly polyandrous, which is where one woman had multiple partners. She's only married to one person. But Sparta had a problem with the birth rate for a, a long time. Don't really know why. There are potentially economic reasons, but then they wouldn't sort of, they wouldn't create a need for polyandry, which implies fertility. Yeah, so, yeah, the ostensible purpose of polyandry was to, so that the women could have more children, but it definitely never worked. So, uh, yeah, but Spartan culture, what we do know about it was really weird. So if... The men there were all infertile and had a cockled fetish. I kind of, I don't think that's the wildest possibility, to be honest. So why was it weird? Talk to me about that. Oh, man. It would take days to go through all the bizarre eccentricities and just savagery of Spartan society. So they had a school system, which was awesome. But the school system was... Also, it was predominantly military. So you live in a mess, uh, which is like a about platoon size, so about 20 people, and you do everything with them for your entire life from when you're 10 onwards. There's a, a couple of stories which I find less believable. So you were meant to go into the mountains and kill a wolf or something. And you were 14, you weren't allowed to sleep overnight with your wife for the first couple of years, a whole bunch of things. But on the whole, all of these anecdotes sort of leave a bit out which you can infer, which is like the probably savage hazing culture that they had. So 
Sparta was basically constantly at war with a group of people that they conquered around 750 BC. So by the time that I studied, this war had been going on for 300 years and they declared war on them every year so that it was legal to kill them. Spartan society was, was, was brutal. It was awful. So talk to me about the hazing. What was the hazing? Well, uh, so I don't really know <laughs> of any hazing, but like we know of a lot of rituals that Spartan recruits apparently had to go through. I believe I read somewhere that it was mandatory to kill a helot uh, Helot was one of the subjugated Spartan people. Spartan culture was just kind of messed up. But they, they were very good soldiers, and that's the thing. The, the security of your, of your state and, by extension, your household and, and your resources was really determined by how well you and your comrades conducted organised violence. And while Spartan society was fantastically cruel, they were very good at, at being violent. And very early on, from like the, the 9th century BC, so, so what we call Sparta is actually one of three villages in the lower portion of Greece. And this little area, it's called Lacedaemon, eventually took control over direct control over two large areas called Laconia and Messenia. And the people in that were all different types of slaves. The population of the whole area was several hundred thousand, maybe even up to a million. But the number of actual Spartan citizens at the time of the Persian Wars, which is the start of classical Greece, was probably like 20,000. So this was a... Like a, a brutal hierarchy. If you were a Spartan citizen, there was a lot of sort of nominal equality. But what you had to go through to access that in terms of military training and the number of people who were denied access to the to similar equality means that it's 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 like um oh I almost said something controversial. <laughs> there are other states that are around today where if you if you have a, a certain religion, you are very much not an equal citizen. And I'm not talking about a Western country. So it doesn't really need expression. Sparta was basically very good at being violent. And so there was an area where everyone was effectively slaves to the Spartan state or, or serfs, basically, because they were tied to the land. And, I mean, they were property nonetheless. And then there was a ring of states around that who were subservient to Sparta, which is like to say that they promised they wouldn't attack Sparta and would join Sparta on whatever wars it went on. So so you're giving up certain independence in foreign policy. And that was how Sparta became very powerful. But the thing is, competition sort of generates improvement. And so Sparta's enemies caught up well, Sparta's enemies, all of Sparta's neighbours eventually caught up. Um, many of them went to war with Sparta several times, even throughout classical Greece during the height of its power. Even little towns like uh, Orchomenus, right next door to Sparta, were able to be a, a sizable challenge to Spartan authority. Sparta was eventually, I mean, it was humiliated during the Peloponnesian War with Athens, but it eventually won. It was later defeated by the Thebans, 
And it, it remained independent for several hundred years, but everyone else had just gotten better by that point and Sparta couldn't compete. I'm not sad to see it go. To be clear, right? <laughs> yeah, but I wish I could say more about the role of women, but I think generally just wives and priestesses is, seems to have been most of it. You were saying earlier on about in Roman culture, the women had more power around the palace in the background. Why was that? Because there were more palaces. Rome had an imperial family. That's why we know about the palace politics. But also some of the historians that we've gotten stuff down from were just into the gossip. There was a Roman culture or Roman traditional values were very... um, uh, it kind of makes me think of like colonial, I guess. Like um, the man had power of life and death for his wife legally well into the, the Republic. I mean, cultures that are that have a long history of being subject to uh, external violence are always hyper-masculine because that's what's required to survive. Rome was obviously a more violent state than most. That's why it became so powerful you can say oh it's because of its government or it's because of no it's because rome could could wage war better than anyone else and partly that must descend from the um indoctrination of masculine values when we get into the emperors if there was an emperor that people didn't like a very common slander was to say oh he's controlled by the women because imperial rome was a ghost of what it had been during the republic but you know, that kind of attack still, you know, that, that hits. Which would suggest that the women actually had no power at all, if that was the case. If it was a slander that to take advice, if you were being ruled by the woman, the women, then any man who did not completely subjugate his wife was open to that ridicule. I mean, your opinion on this is as good as mine because we just don't know. We can't conduct a census or anything. Yeah, it it would be fair to say that they had little to no power. Maybe the life of the average woman was even objectively terrible. Look, I think there is a, a power imbalance, but I don't think it's necessarily productive to view it as men versus women. Ancient societies are just examples of societies, and like all societies, there's a differentiation between people based on power and it's not always logical why they have power it might just be the way they look it could be how much money they have it could be their reputation for being persuasive or aggressive it could be all sorts of things but people are differentiated based on power and all societies are based on exploiting those with less power by those with more power to generate some kind of profit not necessarily commercial but productive so it wasn't just an exploitation by men of women there were many different categories of both men and women and they all exploited each other a massive group of women in ancient rome that we don't hear almost we hear very little about would be slaves i don't know what proportion of rome was it was slaves and at what time but probably let's say at the height of the empire maybe Five to ten percent of the entire Roman Empire were female slaves. We don't know anything about their culture that they had. Many of them were probably menial workers, wet nurses. They 
you know, less savory tasks. So they probably had some really interesting culture that we just won't know about because they never wrote it down. Even if they did write it down, it, it wouldn't have survived through the filter of the Middle Ages to get to us. Yeah, it's just a lot we don't know. Sorry to say. When you were playing to- Rome Total War, um, that was all men, wasn't it? Were there any women in that game? Yeah, so women were known to fight in Germanic armies. Not fight, fight. They didn't have armour and, and all that, but they, they held weapons and they were at the back with the wains, screeching and carrying on and being cheerleaders. <laughs> um, Scythians were known to fight. That's probably where the myth of the Amazons came in, which is interesting we didn't get around to talking about them. Oh, let's talk now. Talk to me about the Scythians. I didn't know that was what they were called. Well, so the Scythians were the people who during the 5th century BC and before and after that time lived in what we now call Ukraine. Yeah, they were um, good on horse. They had some good smithing abilities for gold. They made a lot of gold artefacts. They were into the poppy. And, yeah, they were. it's interesting we know them as, as horsemen, really, because eventually the region became an important source of wheat for Greece. As Mediterranean commerce grew in viability, it became more feasible for Greeks to just give up trying to grow bread crops like barley and wheat because Greece is terrible soil for that. But Greece is great soil for olives. You can't live off olives. You have to sell them. But Ukraine is great soil for wheat. So in the prehistory, there was a myth, not prehistory, in early history, there was a myth of that there was a, a race of or a city-state of women warriors called the Amazons. And the mythical Athenian king Theseus defeated them in battle and married the Amazonian queen. And I'm sure had many years of domestic bliss with her. Yeah, that's another thing. When the Athenian empire sort of exploded in power around the 440s, they built the Parthenon, which is the magnificent marble temple atop of the Acropolis in Athens. That's still there today without its roof, thanks to the Venetians, but we won't go into that. And all the way around the side were these metopes, which are marble friezes of important wars from history, according to the Greeks. They were stolen by the British Lord Elgin, and they're now in the British Museum. But I don't think they will be for very much longer, to be honest. And on each of the sides, they depict an important war from history. One of the wars was the Persian Wars, the Battle of Marathon that the Athenians had won. And the idea was to connect this war that the Athenians just won with these three mythical wars. One was the Titanomachy, which is the war between the Titans and the gods, where Zeus became the ruler of Olympus and Kronos was thrown into the underworld. The third one was the Giganotomachy, the giants and the gods. And then the, the fourth one, was Amazonomachy, which is the war between the Athenians and the Amazons. So, yeah, they were seen as great warriors. Apparently, they they used to cut off their right breast so that they could fire a bow easier. Um, sure. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> I don't think they existed, to be frank, but 
Yeah. Anyone else you can think of? No. I really think that's it in terms of what I know. <laughs> that's really cool. It's been really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting looking at it from a historian's viewpoint, you know? Well, glad to help. And thanks for this chat, Mum. It's been really good. It has. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.